Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today I'm going to do a little bit of a mishmash of different things based on some personal experiences I've had recently on my most recent week in my somatic experiencing training. I've also been getting some questions through Instagram about brain retraining and um This kind of links as well, I feel, to where does all of this, the somatic experiencing, the braining retraining, intersect and complement functional medicine in the realms of chronic illness recovery, chronic fatigue recovery, which is essentially what this podcast is all about. So again, this is a a fairly unstructured episode. I'm going to be sharing a lot of personal experience. And whenever I do share from personal experience, I do like to say that everybody has their own unique experiences and how one person recovers from a chronic illness or chronic fatigue is not the same as how another person recovers. But if you are feeling stuck on your journey, if you don't quite know the next step for you, if you don't know what's possible for you, sometimes listening to the journeys of others can be really insightful to help you understand your needs better and help you make decisions about what is the next step in your healing journey. I'm also going to be breaking down a little bit more the differences between somatic experiencing and brain retraining um, and where I think they can be useful just based on my own personal experience, my observation with clients as well. So I hope you will enjoy this episode. I'll um, yeah, I'll also be sharing a little bit of an update on my healing journey um, and some profound things that have been happening for me as well. So where I'd like to begin is just talking a little bit about brain retraining. Brain retraining is potentially a buzzword when it comes to the chronic illness community. If you haven't heard this term already, I'm sure you'll probably be Googling it after listening to this podcast and you're going to come up with a a lot more information. But brain retraining is, as the name suggests, retraining the brain. And we know that the brain is plastic um, in the terms of neuroplasticity, that it, it can be changed, it can be altered, we can create new neural pathways, and we can also, you know, if we have poor brain health, we can have um, create the wrong type of neural pathways or the type of neural pathways that we don't necessarily want to have that reinforce pain and reinforce distress in the body. So brain retraining is about consciously using the mind to control the body so that we can create more powerful neuropathways, um, so to speak. And my experience with brain retraining, I did a course in brain retraining, which was um, the DNRS program with Annie Hopper, which I'll share more about in a moment. I found it helpful for sure. Did it heal me forever and fix everything? Absolutely not. But it can be a really powerful tool for some people. And uh, there are some people who do brain retraining and it's the only thing that they need. So not to dismiss it as a standalone, very powerful therapy or tool. How brain retraining works is 
if we consider the concept which is known as the triune brain model, which I discussed previously on an episode on mindset and fatigue recovery, the triune brain model is a model whereby the brain is considered to be broken down into the prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking brain. Then we have the limbic system, which is um, the triune brain model is a model whereby the brain is simplified into three basic areas or regions. So we have the neocortex, which governs language, cognition, reasoning, and voluntary movement. We have the limbic brain, which governs emotions, and it can also be linked to instincts and motivational drive. And then finally, we have the reptilian brain, which is governing of a lot of our involuntary responses like digestion, reproduction, circulation, breathing, um, and essentially the execution of our fight, flight and freeze physiology. So brain retraining, because we are voluntarily using our mind to control the body, it's working primarily with the neocortex and the limbic circuits of the brain. And therefore, it's a top-down approach to healing. If you listened to my previous episode on mindset and fatigue recovery, you may have heard me say that a lot of our communication, in fact, the majority of our communication actually comes from the body up to the brain. So yes, we can use mind to body communication to support our well-being, to support our health. It's very clear that that is effective. There are so many people doing brain retraining and getting the benefits of brain retraining. But we may also need to incorporate some bottom-up healing in our journey. And, and that is where somatic experiencing comes in. So I'm not going to go into massive amounts of detail in terms of the science of all of it. I'm sure there's lots of other places where you can find that information. But what I want to communicate in this episode is really just the bigger picture concepts and also share then and interweave them with my own experience. So as I said already, when I did brain retraining, I did the program with Annie Hopper, DNRS. Um, I recommend this program to people based on their personality type. I don't feel it's for everyone. Did it help me? Absolutely, yes. But the way I approached it was from a very, very focused and driven perspective, which I felt was within my capacity at the time. So basically, when I did the program, there's there's a process which she teaches. I, I won't share too much about it, but there's a process that she teaches you, which involves a, a series of visualizations that you do. And the encouragement is that you rehearse an hour a day for six months. So I absolutely fully committed to that in the context of I committed to an hour a day. I didn't, full disclosure, do it for six months. I did it for three, but I did an hour a day. I never missed a day and I was absolutely 100% committed and focused. And I do believe that that commitment and focus was something that helped me to get the results that I was able to get. 
Now, this can be a little bit of a... Um, a little bit of a, a sensitive area for some people because there are certain clients, for example, I would not recommend that they push themselves so hard or they may have the inability to push themselves so hard and then beat themselves up if that is the standard. They believe they need to be 100% committed an hour a day and if they're not able to achieve that for whatever reason, then they can go into a shame spiral. And this is all kind of baked into the complexity of that person's case. There are other things that we need to work through so they could get to a point where they could practice an hour a day, which is why I'm quite sensitive about saying everybody needs to do this. So it's quite a hard approach, which I appreciate if somebody is in the right space for it can be very powerful. But I did my hour a day for 90 days, didn't miss one day. And the reason is I just know that that's how my brain and my body works. If I had cut myself any slack, I would have dropped the ball. So it was better for me just to create the rule. I have to do this every day, no matter what. And that worked really well for me. The biggest difference that I noticed personally was that I had been experiencing chronic diarrhea for, at that point in time, about 18 months. And so by chronic diarrhea, I was experiencing loose stools, sometimes at its worst, 10 to 15 times a day. After every meal, I would be running to the bathroom often two to three times until my digestion settled down. There were points in my menstrual cycle where my digestion did fluctuate. So I did have some days where I may have actually even just been constipated for a day or just had a normal bowel movement for a few days. But I would say 75% of the time I was experiencing this chronic diarrhea. And I had done stool testing, I had taken supplements, I was doing dietary changes, I was doing everything. I tried all sorts of different approaches and they would help in the short term, but the symptoms always just seemed to return. Bear in mind at this point in time, I wasn't aware of the mold illness. So actually didn't choose to do the brain retraining for my digestion. I wanted obviously more energy and no post-exertional malaise. Um, but the biggest impact for me doing the brain retraining was that my digestion finally stabilized. I will also disclose for full transparency that at the same time I was doing a low sulfur diet, I was revisiting a supplement protocol and doing the DRS. And then even after that, I still had to do another cycle, another couple of cycles of digestive support to fully bring my digestion to where it is today, which is very normal and fantastic. So it really got me out of a hole. And that is where I think brain retraining can be very powerful is it gets people who are very stuck out of a hole. It can really be that thing that we need just to stabilize the body and create a little bit of stability from which we can move forward. And because the digestive system is so important for health, stabilizing my digestion was a, a really important part of then like taking the next step on my journey. I had a question through social media about how did you know when it was appropriate to stop brain retraining? And I thought it would be helpful then to elaborate here is that 
I knew it was appropriate to stop because A, I had done my 90 days and I had started to cut myself some slack. So instead of saying I'm going to do an hour a day, I said I'm going to do half an hour a day or 45 minutes. I can't remember. But for some reason, as soon as I gave myself that little bit of flexibility, it was like the wheels came off. I just didn't want to do it anymore. But at the same time, I had started brain retraining, I think it was in March 2021. And um, at that time, you know, the weather was a bit bad. It was still dark in the mornings. And because I'm an early morning person, I'd wake up and it'd be dark outside. So, So what do you do until it becomes light? I would just take myself to my office, which is also like a little yoga studio for me. And I would just do my brain retraining until the sun came up and I could get outside or go for a walk or something. So it was very practical time of year to be doing it. So I recommend if you're thinking about doing it, you know, winter's a great time when you're indoors more and there's not a lot of light. Um, But then by the time I had done my three months, it was now June and the weather was great. And one of my favorite things to do is just go down to the beach in the mornings and get in the sea. So a lot of the visualizations that I was working with past and future were visualizations of me in the sea and just memories of times when I had been just really on top of the world and in the ocean and just, you know, living my best life. And therefore, just logically, it didn't make sense anymore for me to be indoors rehearsing rounds of visualizations when I could actually be outdoors having an experience of things that I really enjoy. So in terms of knowing when to stop, I think it was, it got to a point where there were diminishing returns on investment. You know, I had stabilized my digestion, but it just didn't seem like anything else was really happening. I I wanted to just be outside more, just living my life and enjoying my life instead of continuing to, you know, to a certain extent, reinforce the problem by work, by focusing on the healing so much. And, and I just made the decision to stop. And, um, and, you know, that was a decision that felt right for my body in terms of you and your body as you're listening to this. I don't know what the answers are for you, but I do know as we build connection to the body, we build more trust and it's easier to make decisions when we are more connected to our body, which is a really nice segue into the somatic work. So at the time of doing brain retraining, I was already also engaged with somatic work and uh, I wasn't yet training, but I had done my trauma-informed training and I'd learned various somatic tools through the trauma-informed training. And so I think that's also what helped to supercharge the brain retraining for me is having the combination of the somatic tools alongside the brain retraining tools, because intuitively I was just combining the two anyway. Um, And that worked really well for me, clearly. Um, So here it might be helpful to talk a little bit about what somatic experiencing actually is. Obviously, now I am a somatic experiencing practitioner in training. I've completed my beginner and intermediate years. I'm currently enrolled in my advanced year at the time of recording this podcast. I recently completed a six-day training block in London, which I'll share more about in a moment. But somatic experiencing is a body 
based approach to overcoming trauma, shock, and stress disorders. So the distinction between somatic experiencing and brain retraining, if we're bringing in that triune brain model, is somatic experiencing is working with the reptilian brain, with the brain stem. And we, it's a non-verbal therapy. So we tend to work, well, we don't tend to work, we do work primarily with the body. It is the life's work of American psychotherapist, Dr. Peter Levine. He's got so many books. So if you'd like to read, um, really would highly recommend anything that he's written. But it's really the fruits of his study of stress physiology, psychology, biology, neuroscience, indigenous healing practices, medical biophysics, alongside 45 years of successful clinical application. And Peter Levine is literally a gift to the world. He has done some incredible work. He has created some incredible healing in the world personally, and then through the training that he has developed and all the people who are working using his methodologies and the lives they are changing. Um, it's just absolutely an incredible body of work that he's brought into the world. And here I'll say that somatic experiencing is a registered trademark. There's a difference between somatics uh, somebody who's, um, you know, like a somatic therapist or somebody who practices somatics. Um, but to call yourself a somatic experiencing practitioner, you have to have trained um, under the, um, the educational body of Peter Levine and um, have gone through rigorous training, rigorous mentorship and um yeah, I've done lots and lots and lots of hours of your own personal practice and um, working with others as well. So I think this is a really important point to highlight that if you are looking for somatic support, that you are working with people who are appropriately trained, not somebody who's just done a two-day online course and is now calling themselves a somatic practitioner. So somatic experiencing offers us a way to explore where a person is stuck in the fight, flight, or freeze responses. And that's what I'm trained to do when I'm working with my clients. I'm tracking their nervous system, tracking their physiological states, and I'm using tools and teaching them tools and skills to help to mobilize these survival states that are stuck in the body. Ultimately, it's essentially things that wanted to happen at the time that were not able to happen. So your body is constantly looking for a sense of completion. And it's like trying to complete a physiological response, but for whatever reason, that physiological response isn't able to complete and therefore cannot be discharged. So it's stuck in the body. And then that has an influence on our day-to-day -day physiological functioning. So it's not a talking therapy. We work primarily with the sensations of the body and we're really listening to the voice of the body. And this voice of the body is represented in the form of a concept which is known as SIBAM, S-I-B-A-M. 
And Cybram is, well, it stands for sensations. So we're looking at the sensations in the body, impressions, which might be images that come up as we explore those sensations. So for example, if I'm talking to a client and they're describing a sensation, they might be, they might say something like, oh, it's like a wave, you know, and there may be an image of a wave that comes through and we can work with that. Um, B is for behavior. So behaviors are really powerful. When I'm working with clients and I'm tracking them, they're often creating gestures and movements. And very often those movements are movements that we call defensive movements or defensive responses, like actual movements that wanted to happen at the time that weren't able to happen. So there can be a lot of powerful work that we can do with movement. The A stands for affect, which is emotion. So usually we have sensations which are coupled with emotions. And then the M is for meaning, the meaning that we create about the situation, whatever it may be, or essentially the story that is linked with the experience. And Again, I don't want to get too technical here and overwhelm you, but um, what we're often looking for is if someone's in a stress response, there can be in some cases an overcoupling of these things. So for example, as soon as someone goes into the meaning, they experience a sensation and emotion in their body and it all happens very quickly. That fight or flight response is just a surge of physiological energy. Or what I see a lot working with fatigue clients is there can be what is known as an undercoupling. So very often the sensations, the impressions, the behaviors, the effect and the meaning are disassociated from each other. And as an observation, what I see with clients is a lot of people tend to be disconnected from things like sensation because we have to go into our body and feel the sensations. And if you've had a chronic illness experience or there's a lot of pain in the body, we may not want to go into the body. It may not be safe to go into the body. And therefore we can disconnect from the body. We can disconnect from the sensations. We may disconnect from the emotions that are there um, and maybe any movements um, that, that are present as well. And so there can be this idea of being stuck in the meaning and um, creating stories that are disempowering and just sort of trying to like over explain or justify. And this is where I'll see, you know, people want to understand what's wrong with them or they're Googling to find solutions or they have a story about why they are unwell. Um, But there's a disconnection from the meaning and then what's happening in the rest of the body. So a lot of what I'm seeing work really well in my one-to-one practice and a lot of what we do in the Nurturing Resilience Program is start to bring more of a connection between these elements, get more connection to sensation, get more connection to um, emotion, get more connection to movements and impressions and images. And then usually when we do that, a lot of the meaning begins to shift as well. And again, there can be more access to compassion. There can be more access to empowerment. There can be more access to just overall a 
a sense of acceptance of self. And at the time of recording this, I'm just preparing for the next round of Nurturing Resilience, which is April. I think by the time this gets published, that date would have passed. But in preparation for this next round, I've been doing interviews with everybody who joined the previous November cohort of Nurturing Resilience. Although we all form such a close bond in the group program and people are very open and share a lot, I've really learned so much about each individual person as I've had them one-on-one in an interview just to learn more about their experience. And the two words that keep on coming up not prompted by me, just naturally coming up in the conversations with almost everybody from the program is the word empowerment and the word acceptance, feeling more empowered in their journey, feeling more accepting of where they are in their journey and therefore their ability to meet themselves where they are at and tend to the needs of their nervous system. Because if we think we should be somewhere else, if we think we should be further along, if we think we should be doing more or less, or if we're comparing ourselves to others um, or putting timestamps on when we need to be healed by or putting pressure on our healing journey, we can't meet the needs of our system because we are essentially shoving them down and pushing them away um, in favor of something external. So I just thought that might be helpful to share. So I feel like I possibly have been waffling a little bit, but hopefully what you're getting from all of this is the somatic work is much more body based. It's really about building this deeper connection to yourself, which which is really important if you're somebody who has been in a freeze state for a long time or living in fight, flight and freeze for a long time. It's slowly bringing more connection to back to the body reconnecting the things that were uncoupled or disassociated and in doing so we become more aware of our needs and we become better at tending towards our needs and again reverting to this conversation about the interviews that I have done recently I was interviewing a final lady yesterday who did the program and she's actually a client who I've worked with one-on-one we've done some functional medicine work together and at the, about the same time I was doing the brain retraining with Annie Hopper, I said, I, I think this might be a good thing for you to do because she had a lot of anxiety about her health. And she did also do the DNRS and it did help her. It did improve her health anxiety. But then when I announced the November cohort of the Nurturing Resilience Program, she just intuitively, because she is quite connected to her intuition, decided, I don't really know what this is about. I don't even know if I need this, but I'm, I trust Anna. I'm just going to do this. And we caught up yesterday and I asked her, you know, I know my experience, but how did you find the contrast between the brain retraining and then the nurturing resilience somatic work? And she said that the nurturing resilience program just felt a lot more about about befriending the body she said it felt a lot more nourishing and just kind of a bit more gentle and and that would probably be exactly what I would say as well when I did the brain retraining program I I went in with my inner achiever and I'm so grateful for my inner achiever because when there's a job to be done she's there she can show up 
And it was that inner achiever that let me commit 100% for an hour a day for those 90 days and I got my digestion out of the hole and I'm so grateful for my inner achiever because she was really leading that whole experience. But, you know, after sort of like really doing that very militant process, I delved much more deeply into the somatic work and it is softer, it is slower, it is a little bit more gentle and sensitive, but I think we need both. I think we need to have the stronger, more powerful, let's get it done times. And we also need those gentle, quiet, but also very powerful parts to our healing as well. And so I actually believe in both. I believe the two complement each other very, very well. And that's actually why in the Nurturing Resilience program, we do have both. We have the softer, gentle elements of somatic experiencing. And then there are some bits where a little bit more, which are a little bit stronger and more regimented and um, a little bit more coachy, I would say. So a little bit more brain to body instead of body to brain. And so here I'll move into that since I did the brain retraining, I have been engaged in somatic work. So I have my own mentor and somatic therapist that I have to have as part of my training. And she's amazing. For a long time, I knew that I, I needed someone to support me. And I, I had considered doing talking therapy, but there was just never anyone I felt that I really wanted to work with. And then my current therapist, I met on the very first module I did in my somatic experiencing training and I just knew immediately I just knew straight away you're the one for me and I contacted her as soon as the training ended because I didn't want her to be too busy to work with me so I just contacted her straight away and I was like I really want to work with you and have never looked back and there have been times in my journey as well. So when I found my craniosacral therapist, which I also worked for and um, worked with, shall I say, um, for a while, about nine months of craniosacral therapy, I, I just booked her online and then went to go and see her. But the moment she opened the door and came to call me from the waiting room, I just knew instantly. I was like, yes, you are my person. And um, I really believe that those are the people you should work with. And you know, it's hard when we are maybe frozen, when we are disconnected, especially if there's been a lot of um, abuse of trust in your history, in your health timeline. It can be hard to know who to trust and which people to trust. If you really get a sense of, I can trust this person or this person's got my back or just a full body yes or a full body sigh, then those are the people that you want to work with and prioritize working with in your fatigue recovery journey. I know at the time I was doing my trauma-informed training, I was working with someone who in hindsight was very activated, very much in their fight or flight response when working with me. And every time I was on a call with this person, I would just be like, oh, I need you to slow down. I need you to settle. You know, there was a lot of um, 
I could really feel their activation and they weren't necessarily a good and powerful healing and co-regulatory force for me. So, you know, if you are looking to work with someone, sometimes irrespective of what what they're being said or, or what's being said or what how much knowledge they have, it's really, is this a good person for me to be around? Is this going to be supportive in my healing journey? Anyway, I digress a little bit there. Um, I did want to share that because I think it's just another really important thing to know if you're working on your healing is to work with the people that allow your nervous system to feel safe and held. But what I was saying is that I have been doing somatic work for a long time. I initially started working with my somatic practitioner and mentor for um we would see each other twice a month and now we see each other on a monthly basis and this is ongoing for me it is to a certain extent a prerequisite for my training but i've i hit my training hours long ago um now i just do it because my body needs it and i enjoy it and i see the importance of it not just for somebody on a chronic illness journey but as a human being who's trying to navigate this life as best that they can. And especially I have a huge sense of responsibility in the work that I do to make sure that I am a healing and co-regulatory force for my clients to engage with. And that means taking care of me and taking care of my nervous system. Um, but I started the somatic work a about the same time I found out I had mold. So it's really hard for me to say how much progress was mold and how much progress was somatic work because to a certain extent they were both happening side by side. So I'll never know and I'm absolutely comfortable with never knowing. I know often people with chronic illness because there's so much uncertainty they want definitive answers like what helped you the most was it the mold was it the somatic work which one was it I don't know and I'm never gonna know um but where I'd like to go with all of this now is just a little bit of a healing update and talking a little bit about the training that I did recently so a month ago and I've waited a month to record this podcast for specific reasons I was in London for six days on a six-day block of somatic training. Each time we meet, it's very intense. Uh, we cover certain former categories. We do a lot of practical work and working with other people and also having our own, being, our, being the client and working a lot on our own things as well. And we covered a lot in the specific training block, but I think what resonated most with my system, my nervous system, and, and also just when I consider my client base and the people I'm working with and the experiences that they've had was um, the category, the trauma category of medical trauma and anesthesia. And I actually had someone ask this question on a workshop that I ran in February, the Getting to Know Your Nervous System workshop. And um, they asked whether a surgery could be a trauma. And to a certain extent, yes. The extent of which is dependent on the individual and the individual's nervous system. But just to say that, you know, we can cognitively know that we need to 
have some sort of surgical procedure, we can cognitively know that it's in our best interests, but our animal body is still being put underneath anesthesia, so essentially rendered immobile or drugged, and then being cut into being poked and prodded and essentially traumatized. So I had a lot of surgeries when I was a child and sort of ear, nose and throat issues. I lost count. I don't remember all the details because I was very young, but probably before the age of eight, having about five different surgeries. Also had several traumatic medicine procedures that were not under anesthesia, um, which I I won't share the details because it can potentially be quite triggering. And um, then further surgeries in my 20s as well, appendix removal, I had a laparoscopy. So nothing major, nothing complicated, nothing that was, you know, very, nothing that was very long. But I just had a sense as we were learning about this trauma category, that this was a layer of healing that my body really needed some support around. And how the training usually works is that there's usually a discussion of theory then depending on the trauma category, there's usually a demonstration. So someone from the group could volunteer themselves and then the facilitator or head facilitator then works with that person and and we all watch. And um, this was the first time that a trauma category had been raised where I really thought that I wanted to put myself forward for um, the demonstration. Nothing previously had resonated so much with my system, not on a cognitive level, but I could really feel this desire in my body to work on this. And um, unfortunately, I was not able to volunteer for the demonstration. Somebody had already been chosen. But then we broke into smaller groups after the demonstration and um, and I was able to do my own work as a client uh, with a student practitioner. And I do think there is a lot to be said for watching a demonstration, watching someone else's healing. I think there's so much that your nervous system is already doing on its own just through watching someone else heal. And that is why I really like the power of group work. Um, when I run the Nurturing Resilience program and we have our group calls and there are discussions and bits of work that are happening and everybody is a witness to maybe one person's experience, even though that one person is having a healing experience, that healing experience is also offered up to the rest of the group if they also need to heal in that area. And that means we can actually do more work in a shorter space of time, even if you aren't acknowledging it on a cognitive level. And so um, I do feel that there was an element of healing that I had just from watching the demonstration. But then when I went into my own practice as a client with a student practitioner, um, I just had a very powerful experience. Um, And it's... I feel it's a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast to like describe that experience. I feel that that's something quite personal that I'm going to hold on to just for me. But um, what I will say is that working in this realms of medical trauma, anesthesia, and um, using a lot of uh, physical touch in the practice, I do feel like I came out of that practice in a different body and I don't say that lightly and that is one of the reasons why I've chosen to wait a month 
to share this podcast because I wanted to make sure that I felt that I could still say that a month later. And um, in terms of the experience of my body that feels so different is there's definitely a connection to being able to rest. So I'd say my system is quite prone to hypervigilance. So always kind of being on difficulty, stopping difficulty, slowing down. I can like hear my mom's words, you know, you always do too much. <laughs> that has been the case for a very long time for me. Um, so usually when I'm on the training, I stay in an apartment, which is nearby and I'll go home and I'll make some lunch and I clean up the dishes and I just make everything nice and tidy. And that day I just got home, made my lunch, left all the dishes in the sink and I just got into bed. So we have a two hour lunch break, so it's a decent lunch break. And I just actually got into bed and I didn't look at my phone. Uh, and, you know, I checked a few messages, um, you know, I was messaging Ben, a few little bits and bobs, but just sat in stillness in bed. And there was just this sense of peace and a sense of rest and a sense of calm. And I'm not really been able to tap into frequently, shall I say, for a really long time. So that was the first thing. Just kind of like physiologically, my I use an aura ring which tra tracks heart rate, etc. Did notice a very large drop in my heart rate, big increase in heart rate variability across that week as a whole. My sleep was disturbed, which it always kind of is um, when I'm in London, but I was sort of waking up in the middle of the night and I still felt like I was discharging a lot, like lots of sort of like muscle, um, kind of waking up feeling quite frozen, but then having some twitches. And I believe that that can be normal when we're sleeping, but it just, it, it for me, it felt like something was still being deeply processed at that point in time. And exactly how I can distinguish between the two, I, I just, I don't know, but I, I just know that that experience I was having was not normal for my body. And then since coming back from London and being in my own bed, I've just been sleeping really, really well. Um, but then the final thing just to share is just as a whole, just my energy, um, training in the gym, it's just gone to a whole other level. So I was quite knocked by the virus I had in December. And since being so ill in December, I had been getting a little bit more post-exertional malaise, just like a bit more brain fog after working out, just not able to push so hard. And I felt like whatever that was, was just completely lifted and taken away from that experience. And so the reason why I share this is because I think that there's so many layers to healing and um, a big takeaway for me from that experience was just kind of, you know, when you're considering yourself or I often think of this when I'm considering my clients and kind of when I first work with the clients, I go through a whole health timeline of experiences with them. Like they tell me their life story, which includes things like surgeries and operations, but there may be other trauma categories in there too. And, you know, most clients have multiple different experiences in many different trauma categories. And so sometimes like if you've reached a plateau in your healing, it can be helpful to just go, okay, well, 
what's in the timeline? What does your body feel drawn towards? Okay, maybe we could do a little bit of work around this thing. And I appreciate that's hard to do on your own. It's best done with somebody who can facilitate the process. Um, But I thought it was worth sharing. And I guess the realization for me, the, the big kind of ahas or takeaways at least, or the purpose for sharing is really just to express that when you think you've got like is this is as good as it gets or when you think is oh this is this is it this is as much as my body can achieve this is as far as I'm going to be able to go there's always more and um, I do believe we can fully realize our health Um, and if you're in a place right now where you maybe feel like well I've hit the plateau or Um, I can't go any further than this. I believe that you can, and it's about finding the right people with um, a fresh set of eyes, a new set of perspectives, who can just take you that extra, extra little piece of the way. So there's a couple more things I want to share here, and this podcast is becoming a little bit long, but I'm just going to keep going because it feels right. Um, Where does this kind of somatic work that I'm describing fit into things like meditation, yoga, yoga nidra, breathwork practices. Because this comes up, this conversation comes up a lot. Like people go, oh yes, I'm supporting my nervous system. I'm meditating every day. Or um, I am doing breathwork or I'm doing ice plunges or whatever it is. And I've had clients who are doing sauna, doing ice plunges, have an hour-long daily meditation practice and are practicing yoga, and they still have a huge amount of healing to do. And it's not that I think that there's anything wrong with these practices. In fact, these practices help people cope. These practices can be incredibly supportive, and in some cases, they can help to build our capacity. There's just a difference between doing something that helps you cope in the moment and doing something that creates change at a deeper level so that you just cope better in the moment because of the way that your nervous system is wired. So as an example, if every time I get stressed, I eat a cupcake, the cupcake solves the problem. I feel better. I get the serotonin, I get the dopamine, I get those yummy feelings in my mouth and I feel a little bit less stressed because I ate the cupcake. And and often, you know, that can be followed up with more feelings of distress that come later because I'm now angry at myself for eating the cupcake, but that's the whole other story. But if every time I feel stressed, I eat a cupcake, what happens is that I'm, I never have the opportunity to build my capacity for stress because I'm just feeling stressed, eating, feeling stressed, eating, feeling stressed, eating. But a practice that would allow me to experience the stress, allow something that wanted to complete to complete, and then move through a cycle of activation and then settling without needing to eat the cupcake or do the meditation or do the yoga or do the breath work or do the ice plunge, insert whatever you would like there, is ultimately what we want for our healing. I'm just chatting with a potential new client yesterday. She says, oh, you know, like I've got this whole routine. It's like light, morning light, and then yoga and breath work and meditation. And it just feels so exhausting to maintain it all the time. And I'm like, yeah, it's because you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be doing the things that grow your capacity so you don't have to build yourself a cage of healing, essentially. 
sometimes we can find ways to cope in the world by having all these practices which support us, but in a, to a certain degree, they can also keep us trapped. So again, just a little insight into whether your healing is kind of helping you just cope and manage or whether it's helping you expand and grow. And then finally, where I will finish here is where does functional medicine fit into all of this? I've talked a lot about the power of brain retraining. I've talked a lot about the power of somatic work and some very powerful experiences that I've had with somatic work recently. And it's tempting to say that's all we need. And there are communities or people out there who will validate that for you, who will say, you just need to brain retrain. You just need mind-body work. And here I'll say that there are people who get fantastic results just with mind-body work alone. And, um, you know, like all the best to those people. You know, however we get to our healing, the most important thing is that we feel great and we feel healed and we have connection to our aliveness. So I'm not one to say, oh, you shouldn't heal like that. We can heal however we want to heal. The most important thing is that we we are able to thrive. But I can also see how some people need more input from other healing modalities. Functional medicine being one of those, but you know, there's loads of other different things, massage, acupuncture, craniosacral therapy, Ayurvedic, um, ayahuasca, plant medicine, you know, there's so many different other things we can do. And my experience is, at least with the population group I'm managing, um, I'm working with, is that it's usually a combination of all of these things. But if you imagine like three circles, so three circles that intersect with one another, we, we will always have these three circles which are intersecting, but the size of the circles will vary from person to person. So some people may have a very big mind, body, brain retraining, somatic circle, and a very small functional medicine circle, and a moderate other healing modality circle. Um, whereas other people, and this might be a client of mine, might have a bigger functional medicine circle and maybe an equal-sized somatic experiencing brain retraining circle and then a, a smaller other healing modality circle. So I appreciate I'm describing something that's visual here and you might might not be very obvious based on my words at this point in time, but hopefully you get the message is that often we need a combination of different tools. And it's at least my experience when it comes to healing these chronic and complex conditions is it's not one thing, there's not one practitioner, one supplement, one modality that is the thing. There may be a few very important big pieces, but there are usually some other small pieces as well. So from, from a functional medicine perspective is um, the nervous system is responding to real and perceived threats in the body. And you know, if we are stuck in survival responses, we can use brain retraining, we can use somatic experiencing to help those responses complete and to help the body find a relative sense of safety. And then if the body is in a relative sense of safety, then the, the physiology of the body is going to be more optimal towards rest, recovery and repair instead of, you know, fight or flight physiology. But sometimes the, there are threats in the body which need to be addressed. 
And this is where um, I talk about finding the root cause. So if there's mold, if there are parasites, if there's heavy metal toxicity, if there are other, there's other toxicity, if there's gut dysbiosis, those are going to be um, viral infections. Those are going to be some of the, the big players in the game. So if somebody is only unwell because they've they've kind of just got this dysregulated nervous system physiology, addressing the dysregulated nervous system physiology will help. But my experience working with clients is that when we use functional medicine tools to address root causes like mold, parasites, heavy metals, toxins, and um, viruses, and we do the somatic work, the brain retraining work, we do them together, then we have a very, very powerful pair that can help us move forward in our healing journey. Because as long as there's still parasites in the body, the body is going to be sensing the threat. If there's mold in the body, the body is going to be sensing the threat. If there is viruses in the body, the body will be sensing the threat and so on and so on. So we can use somatic work to um, create a relative sense of safety, but we may have to remove the physical threats as well. And that's where I feel that um, thematic work combines so nicely with functional medicine. And, and that is my niche. And that is why I have the business that I have. Um, and I think there's one more thing I wanted to say here, which is that even if someone has mold, and we, we don't know they have mold, they haven't addressed mold, because that was the case with me, there's still a certain amount of healing that can happen without even knowing that. So I did improve by doing brain retraining and somatic work um, before I knew I had mold. But it was knowing that I had mold, addressing that specifically, and then also continuing with the kind of more mind-body healing work that's really got me to the, the place I am today, which is, a, I think, a, a really great place where maybe some other people would love to be. I always put so much pressure on myself. So um, I know there's more here for me. There's more healing I want to do. Um, just because I just I don't want to have capacity for a normal life. I want to have capacity for a big life. Um, and I've got to grow that. So that's, that's my next mission. Anyway, this has been a long episode. Um, what you don't know is that in the middle of this episode, my computer froze and I thought I lost half of it. But I was able, um, able to find the, half the recording and I've since added to it. And hopefully you won't even notice as you listen back. But if you have enjoyed this episode, as always, um, please share with your chronic illness community. Um, leave a review on iTunes. You know, these podcasts that I create, um, they take my time to create. They also uh, take money to produce. And um, you've probably known if you listen to a few of them, I don't have ads. I don't have sponsors. It's all self-funded. So um, I appreciate if you can share or leave a review because it just helps more people find this information. It makes it all worthwhile for me. If you feel that you may need some more help and support on your fatigue recovery journey, there are different options for working with me, whether that is one-on-one, -on -one, functional medicine only, one-on-one -on -one combining functional medicine and somatic work, uh, or you can work in my group program, my Nurturing Resilience program, and um, learn all the somatic and brain retraining tools there.
You can find all that information on my website. But I will leave you now and wish you a wonderful fatigue recovery day. Thank you for sharing the space with me. Thank you for listening. And I hope there's at least one thing I've shared today, which has been of value.